Lord of life, King over all, have your way among us. Speak truth, Lord, to our troubled hearts. Give hope to those who live in darkness. Give courage, we pray, to those who are timid and afraid. And Father, we pray that you would help us to find joy and delight in Christ as we look and consider the truths about his resurrection. May our hearts truly, Lord, be filled with wonder, amazement, and praise. And may you be glorified as we look into the riches of your word this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just curious, a little survey here as we start off this morning. How many of you are wearing a new article of clothing today? Some of you. I would say that the percentage is not overwhelming. I can remember, again, I'm getting old enough now to remember these things back in the 60s, that it was the, it was the going thing to wear something brand new on Easter Sunday. You bring out the good brand new threads, as it were. I don't know what you're wearing today. I'd like you to look a little carefully at the garment that you're wearing. I want you to look at the, the, the clothing there more a little more carefully. Notice the way it's been stitched together. Hopefully you don't see any loose threads that are starting to fall apart there on her already. But I want you to look, think and think through the fact that their clothes have been woven together as a, a design so that they don't fall apart. That's the whole idea, right? Is that when you buy these clothes, they're going to stick around for a while. And I want you to think about the style of weaving that is used. Oftentimes it's become very sophisticated now with the clothing that we wear. They're, they're put out, they're designed and built by sh- machines that are very sophisticated. But if you think about the old-fashioned way, which most garments and most clothes and cloth uh, fa- fabric was made, it was done by weaving, old-fashioned weaving. How many of you have ever seen a loom? which is the frame you know, that holds, yep, they use a frame that holds all these strings in place. And then you would take vertical strings or threads uh, or yarn of some kind, and then you would run through it, through that mix, a, I call it the horizontal piece. It's a technical thing. I looked it up on Wikipedia. It's too complicated to explain to you all these terms. But anyway, take this piece and go through this way, and then you come through and they cross, and then you put it through another way. And so it's this horizontal piece that keeps getting woven throughout that, And then what you do is you tie it off at the top, you tie it off at the bottom, and you've got yourself fabric that is going to remain together, that's interwoven, locked together with all these yarns and all these different uh, threads. I've got an example right here in a very sophisticated, uh, what do you call these things? Not tablecloth. Placemat, thank you. Couldn't say it. Placemat, yeah, bring illustration, can't even say the name of it. That's good. You can't see it from here. But there are, well, you can't maybe see the colored threads that go this way, but I can see it when you're very, very close to it. There's the, this ongoing pattern of the ones that are going horizontal here, and you can see in the ends, they're curved around like this. They just went all the way through, and then they came right back this way. And this was the vertical threads that are the ones that change color. This thing has been sealed on both ends, tied off, and it is built to last. Now, as I've thought about that illustration... I think it's a good way to launch us into an understanding about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fabric of the gospel, fabric of the Christian faith is woven together around a fundamental doctrine, the doctrine 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus' decomposed body still remains in some tomb somewhere outside or near the vicinity of the old city of Jerusalem, then Christianity literally comes unraveled. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then none of his teaching, none of his claims would have any validity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some additional piece of fabric that's been sewn onto the end of this large tapestry of Christianity and biblical truth. The fact is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is woven throughout the fabric of biblical revelation. It is not just something that's been added at the end. Jesus' resurrection was foretold many times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Perhaps you're not aware of that, but Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Isaiah 55, and a number of other references throughout the Hebrew Scriptures predicted that the Messiah would not only suffer and be put to death, but it also predicted that he would reign forever and he would sit upon the throne of his father David, indicating that he would be alive. He would suffer and die, but he'd also be alive and reign forever. That's why Paul would summarize the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with these very important words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures he's referring to there are the Hebrew scriptures. The only ones that were written at the time in which he was writing. And Jesus predicted his own resurrection. I was talking with someone earlier at our breakfast this morning. Did Jesus actually speak and refer of his own resurrection? Yes, he did. Said three days later he would rise from the dead. John, uh, Matthew chapter 20. And each gospel writer includes in their historical narrative about Jesus' resurrection a, an, a, an account, an eyewitness account of what happened regarding those events. The apostles proclaimed Jesus' resurrection widely when they went from city to city, when they taught in the early church. And it is a common theme found in the epistles and writings of the New Testament. The thread of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is interwoven throughout the entire Bible. And therefore, it is impossible to delete every mention of his resurrection from the dead, from the pages of Scripture, without destroying the unity, the integrity, and the veracity of the Bible. Now, this is the framework I wanted to establish as we start looking at our topic this morning. And specifically, I want us to consider several implications about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are some logical inferences which flow from the fact that Jesus died, but now he's alive? I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we have one in the pew in front of you, and we'd love to have you turn in that Bible to page 1,298. 1,298 is the page that will help you find Acts chapter 4. And I'm just going to paint the scene for you here as we pick up uh, an account of something that's already sort of uh, set in motion in chapter 3. We have a situation here which, again, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven. And his followers now are uh, representing him and his, his mission. And two of his apostles, Peter and John, approached the temple one day. It gives a specific time. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They approach the temple complex. And as they're making their way, there's a lame man 
who's begging for alms. A very common sight, unfortunately, but a reality. And instead of giving the man money, Peter and John spoke to the man and said, Get up in the name of Jesus. And sure enough, the man was miraculously healed. And the two apostles made sure at that point, people witnessed this, saw it happen, saw the man get up, and they were stunned. And so they give an explanation. They wanted to make sure everybody understood. Verse 12 of chapter 3, they said, listen, it's not about us and our power. It's not that we're better people than someone else that this has happened. And with listing now, they've got listing ears of all kinds of people. Now they're in the temple complex. They've got the the leadership of the Jewish uh, people there religious leaders there, they're listening in, and they made it clear that the person who made this happen is the Prince of Life, Jesus Christ, the Risen One. It is His power that healed this lame man. The person who only weeks earlier had been disowned, he had been put to death right outside the city wall, very close to where they're standing. Just a few weeks earlier, they're saying and they're alleging that the same person has now worked this mighty act of power, causing this man to rise and walk. And let me tell you something. There's quite a stir going on in this place. You've got to have that in your mind as we read this text here. And obviously, the message, the more they talked, their message was not very well received. And in order to silence these two apostles, they were arrested, they were imprisoned overnight, And the next day, the religious authorities question them, and they're now asking them, now listen, you explain to us, how is it that this has happened? Performing this kind of miraculous healing. Chapter 4, verse 7 is where they ask the question, by what power or what name have you done this? Now, this is where I want us to focus in the answer that Peter gives in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone... Referring now to Jesus. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. I want us to look at this text, and there's so much in this passage and following it, but I'm just going to look at these verses here this morning and consider three implications of Jesus' resurrection, according to Peter and John, on this occasion. The first point is this. Jesus' resurrection proved that He was God, and that He was supreme over all. By proclaiming that Jesus was no longer dead, and that He was able to impart life and to heal, Peter and John were viewed as agitators, as heretics, Enemies of the truth. You see, the religious leaders were increasingly becoming frustrated. They had successfully seen to it that Jesus was silenced. They finally 
no, uh, had, had removed him from the scene. And they had invested much time and much influence to bring about the fact that Jesus was finally executed. And when they heard an eyewitness report, days after Jesus was put to death, that he had risen from the dead, they bribed the guards who had been stationed at Jesus' tomb because they wanted to spread the false rumor that Jesus' body had been stolen away by the disciples. That's recorded in Matthew chapter 28. And I find it interesting that the people who were hearing this allegation that Jesus was the one who performed this miracle were the ones who realized the truth can be annoying to those who try to avoid it, to those who try to hide it, to those who try to live somehow contrary to the truth, find themselves very much agitated and frustrated when the truth begins to prevail and begins to expose them as unable to control what is the truth. And so despite all these threats and intimidation, Peter does not back down. He emphasized the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, that's important, again, because Nazareth was viewed as a very much of a hick town. It is the town where nobody important is ever going to come from. And here is Jesus of Nazareth, and the religious leaders viewed someone from Nazareth like Jesus, they viewed him with, as, with contempt. He's worthless. Come on. You've got to be kidding me. You can't have a Messiah from Nazareth. And now... The allegation is that Jesus is alive and that he is supreme over everything? Come on! They don't want to give in to that. These religious leaders had invested heavily into building their little world, their religious world, their political world, all of their future they had built. And in that picture of how it would look was the exclusion of anybody called Jesus of Nazareth somehow having a part in building their particular view of their nation, and of their religious entity that they were part of. The problem is, as Peter says in verse 11, they have no use for a backwoods Messiah, a Messiah who supposedly died in shame and disgrace along with a bunch of criminals on a cross. But notice when Peter quotes Psalm 118, he confronts them with the evidence that God vindicated Jesus Christ. By raising him from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is not some rejected, irrelevant troublemaker who made worthless claims. But by raising him from the dead, God exalted Jesus to an elevated place of the greatest importance. He said the stone that the builders rejected, that is Jesus, has now been what? Raised up to be the stone that's in the most central place in a building. The most fundamentally important place in the structure of a building is the cornerstone, the chief stone. And that is who Jesus is. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 records for us the Apostle Paul's reflection on the significance of resurrection of Jesus Christ with these words. Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. That is, to be God, to be divine. Deity. And as a result, no, he said he declared it with power to be the Son of God as a result of the resurrection from the dead. In other words, God made it clear that by raising Jesus from the dead, that he was deity. He's not just some good teacher. 
And God vindicated Jesus in the resurrection. By overcoming death and the forces of evil, God provided irrefutable evidence that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. There were many other people who heard, who made that kind of profession. If you ever look through the Scriptures, there are many different eyewitness accounts of people who drew that conclusion, having looked at Christ and understood what He did, what He said. They made a profession of it. But this is God's profession of it by raising Him from the dead. And so therefore, Jesus is not a helpless, lifeless, respectable religious teacher. He is all-powerful God. And He is one who is able to do whatever He pleases to do. And there's no one greater than He. And here's what I want us to think about for, for, for just to start off here, is to realize in the context of people who try to eliminate Jesus, to try to control Him, to try to push Him out of your life, as it were, think about the point of what these men were saying when they made this allegation that Jesus had done this. Basically, they're saying, it's foolish to think that you can somehow oppose Jesus and win. It is foolish to think that somehow you can successfully overcome Jesus at your game and your attempts to try to somehow push him to the perimeter of life. None of us should be surprised to learn that that Jesus Christ is at work in our world. He is working today. He is saving. He is healing. He is rescuing. He's helping. He's empowering. He's imparting life. And Jesus Christ is alive and active. For some of us, though, we are just totally clueless about that. We don't think about it. We try to operate as if it's not true. We like to think that we're in charge of life. And we're like these religious leaders who get a little annoyed sometimes when we realize that we're not really in control. It is Jesus who's in control and he is working and accomplishing what he wants to do. And the implication of all this down the road is if he really is God, and that's what the resurrection declared him to be. Acts 17, Paul says, that God raised Jesus from the dead and he furnished proof that Jesus is the only one qualified now to be the judge of all the world. That because he was raised from the dead, proved that he is God, and therefore he is and has the right to judge and hold every single person accountable in this world. What's the significance of that? Well, we could unpack that for quite a long time, but let me just say this, my friend. If you think you're living your life and you can somehow say, well, I don't need to deal with Jesus on his terms. That I've gotten this far in life. I've been able to do what I wanted to do. And I felt like I've been able to carry on the way I want to carry on. And I haven't really had to deal too much with Jesus. Let me just remind you, my friend, in light of the resurrection, because he is God, he is supreme over all. Every single person is going to have a face to face encounter and have to deal with Jesus on his terms someday. And the call of the resurrection is to say, recognize who Jesus is now and therefore see that he is the one who's supreme. You are not the one who is controlling everything. And these religious leaders were finally getting exposed to the fact that they had tried to be in control. They're not in control. Jesus is God. He's in control. Have you yielded to his control? We'll talk more about that in a minute as we continue through the text. Consider the second point here this morning. Jesus' resurrection proved that Jesus to be God's exclusive means of salvation. 
We must not gloss over this inescapable issue that Peter pointed out to the religious leaders here, an issue that we all of us need to face in our lives. If you look at chapter 3, verse 19, this is the same incident, but it's just the previous portion that I didn't have time to get into and read all in its entirety. Verse 19, you'll notice that in their first dialogue with these leaders, he urges them to repent and to return. In verse 26, he tells the same leaders that they are those people who need to what? He will bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Their wicked ways? The guys who are in control, the guys who are in charge, they have wicked ways? That's, that's a lot of chutzpah to say that to these guys. But he calls a spade a spade. He says, Peter confronted the religious experts with the fact that they had rejected Jesus, that they had played an important role in putting him to death, and they were confronted, again, these religious leaders are confronted by another inconvenient truth, their sin. Despite their religious involvement, despite their insistence to the contrary, their lives were characterized by wicked ways. And by refusing to submit to God's holy standards, they had chosen to live in defiance of God's authority. Deep down, they knew they were wrong. You say, how did they know? How did did you know they they knew that they were wrong? I don't have time to get into this too much, but I want you to go back in Matthew 21. I've been reading ahead a little bit here in our series on Matthew. And there's a parable which Jesus tells about a landowner. And the landowner... uh, gives out his property to manage by someone else. He hires people to work there, and then they work there. They're supposed to uh, have the produce come in, and then they give a, a, a large portion of that, obviously, back to the owner for his profits. And when he sends all these people, Jesus tells a story. He sends the representatives from the landowner to come and get the, uh, the, the produce that's been grown there. The people working there kill the different representatives. They just kill one after the other, saying, we're not going to listen to you, we're not going to give you anything. It's not yours. We're going to take it for ourselves. And so it finally says the landowner sends his own son there. And so they conspire and say, well, this guy is the future landowner himself. Let's kill him and it'll all be ours. That's a story that Jesus told. And listen to the response. Chapter 2141 of Matthew. We read these words. Jesus asked the question, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to these vine groves, the people that work there? And listen to their response. This is the leaders now, the, spirit, the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. Therefore, I'm sorry, uh, verse 41. Then they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Wow, they do have a conscience. They do see the fact that there is moral evil in the world. They understand how abominable that is. But when it comes to what they did to Jesus Christ, they don't get it. They're in denial. And so here they are as people who are being exposed. And here they look so good on the outside. They're so religious. They're so respectable in so many other people's eyes. And yet they've been exposed. Have you ever had clothing that's a little older and it has had an uncomfortable compromise? Maybe you sat down or you squatted at some point and you had a tear in your garment and you're all of a sudden exposed. You ever had that experience? These 
religious leaders, and all of us ultimately are exposed. Even though we might think we're fairly well covered before God, we're exposed. The real us is seen before all. If you go back into the Garden of Eden, you realize that Adam and Eve, when they were there enjoying life before sin, had no need to cover up. But immediately once they sinned, there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of hiding that immediately was the reaction. And they began to make their own clothing to try to cover themselves. And here in this text, I'm impressed with how Peter points out the fact that these guys are exposed. They are indeed looking as if they're good on the outside, but inside they are in need of covering. The religions of the world offer a long list of remedies to somehow improve ourselves, to compensate for our failure to abide by God's laws. I look at the, as the religions of the world are oftentimes can be compared to years ago when I was growing up. You had a pair of jeans, your favorite pair of jeans. Eventually you get holes in those jeans. Back in that day, it was not a good thing to have holes in your jeans. I know nowadays we pay $50, $100 for a pair of jeans that have holes in them. And they look like they've been worn for about 30 years. And those are very sophisticated, fancy, stylish jeans, I realize. But back when I was growing up, you get a hole in your jeans, then your mother would put a patch on them. And there were these iron-on patches. Anybody remember this? Nobody does this anymore. Everybody just throws stuff away. Anyway, back when we were, you iron them on, and they're uncomfortable, and they just feel like they're rigid, and, they're not, and it's in the knee section, so it's not very... Anyway, next thing you know, it doesn't last. It starts giving way, and it just eventually peels off once you start laundering it, whatever. And I look at that as sort of an illustration of what the religions of the world are like. It's an attempt on the part of many sincere people, I'm not denying their, their sincerity, but they sincerely are attempting to do the impossible, and that is to cover themselves, to make themselves right by their efforts before a holy God. And here in this text, we find the clear statement in verse 12, that, there, that despite the numbers of endless rituals and ceremonies and works of merit that are produced by all these religious people, God has provided only one remedy, only one means of covering the fact that we're exposed before holy God. God has one remedy for sinners who have a guilty conscience before God. It's found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ who offered himself without blemish to God is able to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. According to the Bible, as the only one who was sinless, Jesus assumed that role of a substitutionary sin bearer on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took the place of guilty sinners like you and me. And God's just demands were fully satisfied when Jesus paid that sacrifice. And that's why Jesus could declare, it's finished. I paid it all. I did what was necessary to be done. I accomplished what God set me to do. And say, some people say, well, wait a minute. You Christians are so narrow-minded and bigoted and you, you're, you're so intolerant that you think you're the only ones to have it right. And I say to that, my friends, I don't say that. Jesus says that. Jesus is the one who made the claims. It is Jesus Christ who said, as the only sin-bearer, who was qualified by God and raised from the dead, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. 
No man comes unto the Father except what? Through me. John 14, 6. Jesus taught there are only two religious roads you can travel on. There is a wide road, religious road, on which many people travel. But he says it leads to destruction. But he says there's a narrow road, only of which a few people travel, and that leads to life. Matthew chapter 7. And the path to life is narrow. Why? Because God has provided only one Savior. There's only one. And the resurrection shows why He is uniquely set apart and qualified. Jesus is the only one God raised from the dead and publicly affirmed that His payment for sin was sufficient for people like you and me who need a covering. We need to have our sins covered by the blood of Christ. And so Romans 4.25 gives this great assurance in seeing the resurrection of Christ played out. Jesus was delivered up, that is, He was crucified because of our transgressions, not His own, our transgressions, And He was raised because of what? Our justification. Which means our being declared right with God was made possible through His resurrection. Jesus died as a substitute. And in His resurrection from the dead, God accepted His costly payment. And it proved that the penalty of our sins were fully paid and were fully forgiven. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we are still facing condemnation. We are still facing the judgment of God. We're still facing the fact that we need coverage. But because Jesus lives, He is able to save those who rely upon Him, His successful offering of Himself for our sin. And because Jesus is alive, all who trust in Him, and not in their own human efforts, they will find complete cleansing. They will find complete Removal of this stain of sin and shame and condemnation. I'm going to tell you an honest story. One of the days of my life that was probably most, my most desired day of having new clothes was after spending three days hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, when I was in the seventh grade, I was at camp and we were on a, a very long hike and we were in the western part of North Carolina, and the elevation was straight up one mountain with a big backpack that was about 25 pounds heavy or 30 pounds, and then straight down the other side of another mountain and straight back up another mountain. And you talk about hot. It was July, and I was perspiring and sweating so terribly every day that after the third day, I couldn't stand myself. You ever been that way? I mean, it just reeks. You go to bed, you stink. You wake up, you stink. Everything's sticky. You smell. You're like, oh. But you're on the trail. So everybody else is the same way, by the way. Everybody else stinks and you know, smells and whatever. And after the third day, I finally said, I can't take this anymore. So I got rid of those old smelly clothes. And I uh, won't go into too many details, but I had some my basics on, let's put it that way. And I went and found a creek. And I took some sort of a quote-unquote bath as best I could with freezing water. It was very quick. Threw on the new clothes, and I mean, I felt like I was a new man. Just to have something that didn't smell and reek of sweat and perspiration for three days' worth. And I think that's sort of what Peter realizes here, is that what you need is something brand new here. You need to get rid of all the stuff that you're hanging on to to think you could somehow be right with God by doing all the right things. 
No, that's not what he says. You come to Christ because it's in his name that we have the gift of eternal life. Because Christ is alive, those who come and they repent of their sins and place their faith in him, Acts 3.19, repent, return, that your sins may be what? Wiped away. Enjoy the full forgiveness that is found in Christ and know that you're forgiven, my friend, because the grave is empty. The grave is empty. You know for sure those sins are fully forgiven, paid for. You can enjoy God. Enjoy knowing Him. Enjoy serving Him. Enjoy, no matter what happens, to know the delight of His favor through Jesus Christ on the basis of grace through faith. And so it is the resurrection of Jesus is, God, is God's declaration that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're no longer at odds with God. But through Jesus' atoning blood, we can enjoy peace with God. May I say to you, my friend, that one of the great joys and delights of life is knowing to be fully forgiven and to know that guilt. You don't have to be ashamed. You can stand before God fully clothed in Christ. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's look at the third point here. Jesus' resurrection proved that Jesus has the power to transform lives. I'm going to ask you to do something now. Some of you have gotten up at 5.30 or 5 o'clock this morning, whatever. Some of us are a little hot. It's a little stuffy in here, I think. I want to stand up. I'm probably just take a break. Let's stand up here. This is a stand for a moment. Take a deep breath and sit down. Yep, stand up. That's good. Thank you. All right, now you can be seated. You say, you're crazy, man. You, you, you almost let us loose again. Well, I don't want you to miss this last point. Point number three. Jesus' resurrection proved that he has the power to transform lives. My friends, we don't want to talk about nebulous things that are irrelevant to life. We want to talk about the fact that Jesus' power, the fact that the grave is empty, is a word of encouragement to us. Those of us who struggle, those of us who are facing parts of ourselves that we wish was different. It's important not to overlook this transformation in the lives of these apostles. Look at the text here and notice Peter and John. According to verse 13, which I did not read to you earlier, 4.13, when they're up there making these bold statements, calling these guys on the carpet, basically exposing them and calling them for what they really are, notice that the the response of these leaders is what? They recognize that these guys who are talking to them are what? Uneducated and untrained. You're unsophisticated fishermen from up there in Galilee. Come on, man. You guys don't know anything. Who are you talking to? But do you realize, my friend, that these are the people who, having been former fishermen and then spending time with Christ, that when Christ was under the pressure and when they were putting the intimidation on Christ and when they were coming after him and arresting him, what did they do? Like all the uh, the rest of the 12 of them, they all sort of went their own ways and denied him. Peter says, I don't know who this guy is. They're all sort of backtracking, full of fear, intimidated, thinking, I don't know if I want to die. I don't think I'm ready to do that. And despite the, the intimidation and imprisonment from the religious leaders that are silencing them, trying to silence them right here and right now in this account in Acts 4, from speaking about Jesus' resurrection, notice the incredible courage and boldness of these two men who are standing there. It's because of the Holy Spirit, clearly, as it says in the text there, They went from fleeing in fear to bold proclamation. 
And later in chapter 4, we learn that they were ordered to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. Verse 18. And look what Peter's response was in verse 20 of chapter 4. He says, We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. The resurrection of Jesus Christ had transformed these men. The formerly intimidated, frightened followers of Jesus are now challenging the religious authorities with the inescapable truth that Jesus Christ has triumphed over death and the grave. Jesus is not some sort of inspirational teacher who died in in weakness and dishonor. He willingly laid down his life and then was raised from the dead victorious as the Lord of life. And his truth brings about renewal in our minds. It is Jesus whose spirit empowers us to do what we think we can't do. It is Jesus who helps us when we're struggling with temptation to know that he prays for us. He's been tempted and tried in every way we get without sin. And yet he welcomes and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And I want you to think for a moment, my friend. These men's lives were changed. Imagine what it would be like if you had clothes that you could wear that was always in style, that would always protect you, that would always uh, remain in perfect condition. It would never wear out. And you could go into the nastiest and worst, most challenging situations, and that clothing would eventually sort of wash itself over a period of time. Imagine if you could wear garments that were always right, Never needed mending or repairing. And I think what happens here is these men understood the principle of what Christ had provided them. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Says, a promise from the prophet Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For He has clothed me with the garments of my salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you think about living your life in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead, my friend, it will radically change your life. Because the righteousness of Christ says that you no longer have to in any way perform for God to, to, uh, to be on good terms with you. You acknowledge that you're broken. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. You acknowledge your struggle. But God sees you clothed in Christ's righteousness. And therefore, you find joy in every situation. Why? Because Christ has died for me and Christ lives for me. And wherever you go, you take Christ with you. When you're dealing with a difficult person, when you're struggling with a difficult sin, when you're dealing with sadness and loss, when you're dealing with the fact that you feel as though you become discouraged by so many things that are hard to deal with in life, my friend, remember what you got clothed on. The righteousness of Christ. He is for you. He is with you. He is coming for you. It's a reminder that your life has been changed because you now belong to Christ. And now He will give you whatever you need to face whatever situation you're in. Notice these men here in this text. They did not hesitate to submit to Jesus as Lord and Master. They clearly desired to do so in this text. They were confident that if they were to lose their life, they would gain their lives because Jesus is the pioneer and the giver of eternal life. And because Jesus is alive, we are able to live in newness of life. Look at that principle, my friend. Romans chapter 6, 4. You've got to look at it some other time. When we're united 
to the risen Savior by faith, we too can walk in newness of life. That doesn't mean it happens overnight, my friend. It doesn't mean it happens automatically. But it means that we have the process by which He walks us through the process by which we put off the old and we put on the new. And since Jesus was raised and ascended to glory, He's able to send the Holy Spirit to equip us, to help us, to enable us to do what we in our own strength cannot do. Imagine, my friend, having the robes of Christ's righteousness on you every day, 24-7. And that you'll wear those someday right into heaven and be in His presence. It is the risen Christ who has given those to you, my friend. Therefore, be immovable. Don't be filled with fear. Be a person who is with great joy serving Him, counting on His promises, knowing that God has what declared that He is great and king and mighty over all, he will give you what you need to do what he's calling you to do. Let's pray. Almighty God, we again thank you that you are the one who has demonstrated in history a power that the world has never seen before or since. A power that's unmatched. A power that has broken the chains of sin and death, Satan and hell. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ has been shown to be and has received your thumbs up that He has been proved to be one who is able to save those who come to Him. We thank You that He paid that sin price fully and the empty tomb is the proof of it. Lord, for those of us who are here today and we must honestly say when we're fully exposed and shown to be who we are, that our life is characterized by wicked ways. I pray, Lord, that You would help us to see that with Christ there is covering. With Christ... There's no more attempt to try to hide and cover up whatever we think are our imperfections and try harder and harder and harder to get better, to keep patching up the areas that we see the faults in our lives. Lord, we thank you that we come in our sin to Christ and then he clothes us with his righteousness as we receive it by faith and all he's done for us on the cross. Lord, I pray for there's anyone here today who's never fully known that kind of full forgiveness and change of heart that comes when they surrender to you in faith and repent of their sin. May they do that even this day, I pray. And Lord, for those of us who know these truths, who have come to you in faith, as childlike faith years ago, I pray that you would help us to see with new spiritual eyes what it means to live life clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Help us, Lord, to have joy in whatever situation we're in. Help us to know what it is to have forgiveness for whatever sin we've struggled with. Help us to know what it is, Lord, to have your presence with us, going with us, helping us, encouraging us, empowering us, giving us courage, helping us to resist sin, helping us to learn to pray more, and living our life for you, Lord. We pray that the risen glory of Christ might be our reality day in and day out because Jesus is alive. We want to give you, Lord, glory and praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.